sermon scripture. The scripture reading is going to be from Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13. And if you'd like to read alone in the Blue Bibles on your pew, you can find the passage on page 596. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Icon. Um, my voice is a little scratchy today, um, and that's because I went to the King's Kaleidoscope show last night. So, yeah, it's good to see that everyone who I saw there was there. Hold on. Yep. Yeah, okay, yeah, everyone. I was about to say, we're missing a couple people there. They're sleeping in. <laughs> um, so you'll have to excuse me for that. Um, so usually after our scripture reading, uh, we do pray uh, and uh, I'm going to do that as well today, um, but I want to have an extended time of prayer as well because, um, you know, I, I, I am very allergic, very cautious to make sure that headlines isn't what overly influences what we talk about in the pulpit, um, but this is a moment for us as a church to pray, um, and so I, I want you to, to join with me as we uh, offer both a praise and a plea to our God. So would you, would you join me as we pray? And then we'll get into the text. Father, we, we, we do offer to you a praise and a plea. God, we, we thank you and we praise you that children will be able to, to see life more now. God, you have created every human being with dignity 
and with worth and with value. And we praise you, God, that that dignity in some way is more recognized. Apart from all the politics and everything, God, I thank you that at least the dignity of those unborn children has been elevated. And yet, Father, we also offer a plea. How often our praises to you come with pleas as well, because even when we praise you in our fallen world, every praise comes with some other problem that comes about, some other failure of our system or of our culture or of our civil society that we plead with you to help us with, God. And so we do, we do plead, God, that for the women and unexpected mothers who today are more afraid than they were on Thursday, Father, I pray that you would comfort them. We acknowledge and we respect the dignity of that child in their womb, but we also recognize and respect the very real sense of panic that might be in their hearts. Father, I pray that you would comfort them. Father, I pray that your church would get its act together and actually work for the the care of human beings throughout all of life. That our life ethic would be coherent and full enough for us to care deeply and to press forward in this, to, to bring about flourishing, to bring about in some level some sense of shalom like you want to create in the world. And so Father, I, I pray that you would help your church to get in gear and act all the more. I know there's so many who have acted, but we pray for, for more, that you would spur your church on to be a source of justice and a source of comfort and of help of aid and of mercy, God. And Father, I I pray also that knowing that so many of our problems as a society eventually comes back to the failure of men, God, I I pray that for the men who, who don't wanna take responsibility and so often cause the problems and the pain that persists, God, I pray that you would humble them and that you would bring about repentance across our nation from the young men who want to stay in adolescence, who want to prolong their comfort rather than step up and take responsibility. God, bring repentance. And Father, where there are gridlocks in the system that keep women from accessing the care and the help that they would need, mercy that they would need. God, I pray that your mighty hand would undo that gridlock and actually bring about participation for the sake of flourishing, God. I think we all feel here today the the desperate condition of our society and its gridlock, and I, I pray that you would be our helper, God, and that you would overcome so much of what stands in the way of flourishing, that you would be our warrior who fights for flourishing across our nation, Lord. Father, we, we trust you for that. We, we offer these things to you not as, a, not as something we just have to do, but as something that we really give to you. We really give you praise, God, that you have created every human being with dignity and worth and value. We praise you that there will be children who will be alive because of that. And we plead with you that you would act. Your grace is you doing for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. And there's so many things in this conversation that we cannot do for ourselves. 
So, Father, be our helper. Be gracious to us and hear our cries. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word and as we consider this church in Philadelphia, as we consider our own faithfulness to you and our allegiance to you supremely, God, I pray that you would help us, that even as each of these messages end, that we really truly would hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today, and that you would unite your power with my weak words toward that end. God, be with us and help us in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you, uh, I, I do want to say, if you, if you have any questions and, or need to process through or praise or wh- whatever you're feeling, I, I, I'm not um, uh, unaware that there's many different things that come up in people's heart, and, and I want to actually help and shepherd you through those. And so if you're feeling some things, whether it's praise or whether it's anxiety, uh, come and talk. Don't, don't leave that closed in your heart, but actually come and open up. And so... Well, if you're, if you're new with us today, I want to welcome you to our church. Uh, I know that finding a new church can be a difficult process, uh, and so I hope that as you visit with others today, you feel welcomed and seen. Uh, we are currently in a series uh, going through the last book of the Bible, uh, the book of Revelation, which if you're new to our church can be quite a shock as you walk into a new church and you think, oh, shoot. They're uh, going through Revelation. What is this church all about? Uh, Calm down. It's not because we're crazy. Uh, It's because we believe that this book of the Bible is is really important for us as Christians in order to grow in our endurance and in our resilience and through some of the imagery and even some of the the on-the-surface craziness of this book, we actually are helped in that resilience. And so we're we're going through that. And today we we find ourselves uh, with the message that Jesus has to the church in Philadelphia, Uh, the city of brotherly love, uh, but the Christians are receiving anything but that. (laughs) Uh, So let's let's get some context on on what's actually going on in Philadelphia. So a little bit of historical context, Uh, the city of Philadelphia kind of has a unique history that brought about some different cultural elements that are important for us to consider. The first of which is one of the biggest events that influenced this, his, uh, this city's history and culture uh, happened in 17 AD. So in 17 AD, uh, there was a massive cataclysmic, cataclysmic earthquake uh, that struck Philadelphia and the surrounding region and like absolutely devastated it. Everything was leveled. In fact, it was, it was so devastated that Rome actually gave Philadelphia a five-year exemption from having to pay their financial tribute to the government. Uh, which for Rome, that's a big deal. Uh, like every government, they want their money, right? And so they, uh, they gave them an exemption from that so that they could rebuild after all of that destruction. But the city of Philadelphia uh, actually expected more help from Rome than just a five-year exemption from paying a tribute. They, they expected Rome to get behind their efforts to rebuild in a little bit more of a comprehensive way, but that, now, that help never came. And so... Over time, after that earthquake, there grew just a a general sense of distrust that permeated the culture. Uh, And that distrust that Philadelphia had toward their government uh, eventually evolved into a sense of betrayal. Uh, Not only did they feel like they didn't get enough help from the government, but eventually the government actually betrayed them in their efforts to rebuild. And so uh, not only did they not support the city like they wanted, but actually years later, the emperor Domitian tore down their economy 
by instructing them to tear out all of their wine vineyards. Uh, so in, in Philadelphia, there was uh, a lot of vineyards and uh, it was kind of the backbone of their economy. And it, in fact, it was, it was so good and produced such good wine that it competed with Rome, which again, that's a problem. Uh, Rome is gonna wanna have the corner uh, on that market. And so they instructed Philadelphia to tear out all of their vineyards, taking away their financial capability of rebuilding from the earthquake. And so what was a sense of distrust from the earthquake turned into a sense of betrayal. Now, why, did, why does this any, any of this matter other than just a history lesson? Well, well, because of this sense of betrayal, Philadelphia did what would be expected. They huddled together and, and became more focused and reliant upon the communities within the cities, or within the city. If we're going to be on our own, then, then we better buckle down with our tight-knit communities. We better really rely on one another if we can't rely on outside help. And so it was a city full of tight-knit communities that huddled together in order to provide one another with the support that they needed. And it's in this culture of community reliance that the Christians are being excluded from. So throughout this message that Jesus gives, Jesus references open doors and closed doors. Uh, what, what is that all about? Well, this is a reference to the practice at the local Jewish synagogue of allowing people in who have been accepted into the community, accepted into the Jewish community. If you weren't accepted there, you were not allowed in the synagogue. Now, in the early years, Christianity was often seen as a Jewish sect, and so Christians would gather in the synagogue along with other Jews and kind of do their thing, do their synagogue stuff. Uh, but as time went on, and as these Christians began to preach the, the resurrection of Jesus and to preach that Jesus is the one true Messiah, these Christians began to encounter persecution, not just from Rome, but from the Jews as well. And so the door was closed on the Christians in Philadelphia. They were not allowed in the synagogue. Now that, that might sound like a small thing to you. Okay, you're not allowed somewhere. It's, we might think it's the equivalent of that mean girl's quote. You can't sit with us, right? <laughs> That's what I think of when I hear this. But, but it's much deeper than that. It's deeper than, than just a vague sense of rejection because the synagogue was the center of Jewish society. It was the center where everything happened. It's not just where you went for a teaching from the rabbi, but, but you also went there in order to commune with family and with friends and to, to make connections within your local city. Maybe you were a vendor and you needed this person or this, I don't know, this, this product. One of the best ways to connect with others would have been within the synagogue. All of your social life would have been housed within the walls of that synagogue. And remember, Philadelphia is a city run by tight-knit communities. And so within all of this, the Christians are rejected, ostracized, excluded. They are the outcasts of Philadelphia because they have no community life to connect themselves to within the city. And yet within all of this, these Christians have remained faithful to Jesus. The church in Philadelphia and the church in Smyrna 
are the only two churches that Jesus offers no rebuke to. Jesus has nothing negative to say about this church in Philadelphia. That sounds like a huge thing. I would love that, to know Jesus' perspective on Icon Church and to get nothing back but a positive report card, all good, no notes, you know? That sounds incredible. These Christians have remained faithful and Jesus commends them for that faithfulness. They have not allowed their exclusion from normal society to to be something that pushes them over the edge and and causes them to renounce their faith or, or maybe to refurbish their faith in order to make them more acceptable to their community. They have remained faithful in the midst of all of this exclusion. Being on the outside has not pushed them away from Jesus. And out of all of the messages that Jesus gives to these seven churches, I find this one the most relatable in terms of the consequences that they're suffering. So the the churches that we've covered uh, certainly connect with us in what they are having to battle through, right? As we've gone through, what, five now? This is our sixth church to go through in the book of Revelation. Uh, We've been able to connect with some of what they're having to battle against, things like sexual immorality or pagan practices, These other churches are having to make sure that they don't give improper allegiance to the government of Rome. These things we can certainly relate to, but the consequences for those other churches was often death, which is hard for us Christians in the West to really relate to, that idea. We know it's happening in the world. We know that Christians in the world are dying because of their faith, but it's still something that feels so distant, so we can't really connect with it. We can't really analyze whether we're faithful enough to Jesus to endure death because it's nowhere close to us in our faith and in our witness. But here, we can relate to this. Here, the the consequence of social exclusion, that's something that we can connect with. Indeed, social exclusion because of our faith is a consequence that I believe we most have to reckon with and be ready to accept, friends. That's something we have to to reckon with. We as Christians in Seattle have got to be prepared to, to suffer some social consequences for our faith. To know that, yeah, sure, you're not gonna die because you're a Christian in Seattle. Hopefully not. But in terms of what circles you're welcomed in, what sectors of society that you can be a member of and a participant in, some of that might be closed off to you. And so I I just wanna simply ask, if you're a Christian here today, and if you're not a Christian here today, I I wanna welcome you, I'm glad you're here. But if you are a Christian here today, I wanna simply ask, what level of readiness do you have to be rejected? I wanna wanna pause on that for just a second and have you gauge your own heart. It takes more processing processing time than what I'm gonna give you, but I, I want you to gauge what's my real sense of readiness to be excluded, to be rejected because of my faith to Jesus. Maybe on a scale of one to 10. What's your level of readiness? Because the truth is, friends, if you remain faithful to Jesus, you will not be welcomed 
within certain sectors of our city's life and culture. You simply won't be. You won't. You won't <laughs> if you remain faithful to Jesus. Now, 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 I know that we are in an age right now where I think Christians are rightfully so trying to work through what areas of culture we can participate with and still remain faithful to Jesus. Rightly so, I think that the church is trying to rediscover a sense of wins winsomeness in order to connect with our neighbors. That's a good thing for us to analyze and think, okay, what areas of life can I actually connect with my neighbors and still be faithful to Jesus? What, what, what sectors of society can I participate in and still be faithful to Jesus? It's good for us to figure out winsomeness. But our quest to be winsome should not devolve into a lack of distinction. There are areas of thought, of ethics, of worldview, of lifestyle, that if you remain faithful to Jesus should be a contrast to our neighbors. There should be a distinction. I, I preached on this when we went through the Sermon on the Mountain, what it means to be the salt of the earth. That's not about like you maintaining and persevering, uh, moving society forward. It's about you having a distinct flavor to your life that marks you as something separate, something different. And we as Christians should have that sense of contrast to our neighbors even as we try to connect through winsomeness, and it's in that sense of contrast that just may result in your rejection. And so I ask again, are you prepared to accept that? Because it is inevitable, and if it's not happening, we're probably not being at least publicly faithful to Jesus. If there's not one area of our city's life that you can look at and say, I probably wouldn't be welcomed there. I would probably have the door shut on me there. That's probably a sign that we're not being publicly faithful to Jesus. I mean, Jesus himself said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. That's a scary thing for Jesus to say. You should be afraid when all men, when everyone thinks and speaks well of you because there's no distinction in you. You're just like the world. And Jesus says, wake up. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. He's not saying that you should be a jerk and get yourself some enemies. Many Christians do that and we need to repent of that, of course. No, he's saying you should be a little uneasy if you never encounter rejection because of your faith in Jesus. That's not happening. If there's not one area of our city's life and culture that would push back against your faith, well, that faith maybe is severely malnourished. As Christians, there are some doors that need to be shut on us. As Christians, there are some doors that will have to be shut on us. It's part of the Christian life, it's part of discipleship to Jesus to know that I won't be accepted everywhere. I won't be liked everywhere. Now, it doesn't mean I don't wanna be liked. It doesn't mean I'm not gonna to try to be winsome, loving, open, caring, hospitable, welcoming in even those who wanna not welcome me. 
but it does mean that, that we should be ready to accept that just like these Christians here in Philadelphia. And yet, when the doors of acceptance in our culture are shut, there remains an open door that we really need. Uh, the, though these Christians in Philadelphia have been shut out of society, Jesus reminds them that they have before them a door that he has opened that nobody is able to shut. Jesus doesn't doom them to a life permeated throughout with exclusion, but actually reminds them where they've been accepted. And oh, how these Christians would need to hear of where they are really accepted. The only way for them and for us to endure exclusion is to be accepted where it's most important, to be accepted, to be welcomed in. That's the only way for us to endure exclusion, to endure rejection, is to know that I have an acceptance somewhere that matters, somewhere that can actually satisfy this need in me to be accepted. And, and as I was preparing for the sermon this week, I was just struck, friends, by the kindness of Jesus in this promise of an open door. Jesus knows where they are suffering and knows their persecution and offers an assuring promise that corresponds with their pain. He's done that through every single message to these churches, and I don't want us to miss the kindness of Jesus in that. That where we experience pain, where we experience persecution, trial, pressure, tribulation, Jesus doesn't say, get over it. Where you struggle, Jesus doesn't fold his arms and just wait for you to get it together. Well, won't you just accept that this is a part of the Christian life? No, Jesus responds with an openness and says, yes, I, I see that. I see that pain, I see that trial, and I'm opening up to you what, what would soothe that pain, what would help you endure through that trial. And in order to help them endure, this exclusion, Jesus reminds them of the welcome that they've received in him, that they've received an open door. He has set before them an open door of which no one is able to shut. They have received a welcome from Jesus. You know, the, the Apostle Paul hits on this idea of being welcomed by Jesus towards, towards the end of his letter to the Romans after chapters and chapters of dense gospel theology, Paul, in many ways, sums up his point by this in Romans 15, seven. Just listen to this. Therefore, after all of this theology, he says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. That's his summation, it's, it's wonderful. Paul communicates here that the grace that extends towards sinners from God can be summed up like this. He welcomes you. Now there's a lot of different ways to, to welcome someone, right? You know, I'm, I'm somewhat of an introvert. Uh, I've already said that in the service, but so anytime we have people over for dinner, I always have to gear myself up. If you come over for dinner, I, I want you to be there. I really do. Uh, but I need to gear myself up. Anybody else? Yeah, you just gotta prepare, you know? You gotta prepare to, to lose that time or to lose that, yeah, I don't wanna go any further. I'm like, <laughs> I have to prep myself in order to welcome someone into our home, not because I don't like people, 
but just because it, it, it takes a lot out of me. And so uh, we welcome people in different ways. And, and we can also welcome someone by opening up our lives to them. We can, we can say things like, hey, you're welcome to stop by anytime, right? We say that. Or, or, or while you're staying here, you're welcome to grab anything out of the pantry. These are, these are meant to be generous and hospitable welcomes, right? Well, none of that really communicates what Paul is actually saying in that text about welcome and ultimately what Jesus is trying to get these Christians to see. The, the, the word welcome in that text in Romans in the Greek actually has a root word that conveys urgency and intention. When Paul says that Christ has welcomed you, it's, it's not a passive thing. It's an active thing full of urgency and intention. It's actually the same word that Jesus used in the Gospels when he says to take up your cross. Really what that reads in the Greek is welcome your cross. Take it up. Action. Urgency. Intention. Which means this, that the welcome of grace we receive in Christ is a welcome that snatches us in and brings us close. It's not just a, hey, you're welcome to stop by any time. No, it's a, come here. I wanna get you in close. The gracious heart of God in Christ is not him leaving open the possibility of relationship, but wrapping you into it. Let me put it this way. The grace of God in Christ, which welcomes us in, is not God just leaving the door unlocked so that you can pop in whenever you'd like. It's not the grace of just hospitality or possibility, but it's the grace of intention. I'm going to pull you close because I want you here. You know, I think of this whenever, uh, with my, my, my daughter, when, when we lived in Texas, uh, Texas is full of crazy thunderstorms, um, which I, I kind of miss. I really miss some lightning. If you've ever had a good thunderstorm, you know what I mean. Uh, not tornadoes, but, you know, um, and we would have all these crazy thunderstorms. And, and, and I actually remember one time when, when Margo was really young, um, uh, her and my wife were out doing something. I can't remember. I was at the house, and there was a crazy thunderstorm that happened. And it's one of those ones that, like, just, like, happens like that, you know, that just pours down the heavens. And, and they were driving home, and she texted me and told me, hey, I'm close. I have this uh, stuff that I picked up, and then I also have Margo. What do you think I did in that moment when she texted me and said, hey, I'm about to be there with this stuff that I picked up and with Margo. Do you think I just walked over and was like, okay, I'll make sure the door's unlocked <laughs> while it's pouring rain outside, <laughs> while, the while the clouds are breaking open and thunder is cracking? No, what I did is not just unlock the door, but actually went out and met them, grabbed Margo and pulled her into the house. That's much of what what the welcome we have in Jesus is about. It's not just him unlocking the door. We so often view it that way, that grace is just the unlocked door that makes a way for us to get into the shelter we need. And that's true, grace is purchased so that the door can be unlocked, but it's only half of it. The grace of God is not just an unlocked door, but a loving God who runs out into the storm and wraps us in his arms and pulls us in where it's safe and dry. That is the welcome we receive in Christ. Behind the grace of welcome is not just a hospitable opportunity, but an intentional God who snatches us from danger and brings us close. That's what Jesus wants to communicate to these Christians in Philadelphia. You are accepted here, you are welcome here. I bring you into myself, into my relationship and into my presence. 
I want you here. Here you are accepted. And notice he says it's a door no one can shut. Jesus has sealed that door open for us, friends. Now there's actually a a second meaning behind Jesus' reference to an open door that nobody can shut. And I wanna wanna cover that. We, We get a clue to that in the imagery that Jesus gives around those in the synagogue coming and bowing down before these marginalized Christians. It says this, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Uh, This is not just a picture for these Christians to hold on to, uh, that those who are persecuting them will will one day give them reference. This is actually a a reference back to an Old Testament story uh, around one of the main characters of the Old Testament named Joseph. So if you don't know anything about Joseph, I'll give a a quick summation of what happened. Uh, So early on in Genesis, uh, there is a family, um, and Joseph is one of the kids, and he has a bunch of brothers. Uh, And Joseph, one night, has a dream that he should not have shared. (laughs) Um, He has a dream uh, that all of his brothers will one day bow down before him. And Joseph, having the social awareness that he does, tells his brothers, you won't believe the dream I had last night. I had a dream, and it felt like it's going to come true, that all of you will bow down before me one day. And Joseph's brothers were like, bump that, you know, like that's not happening. And so they, you know, they take care of him. They lie and say that he was killed, but actually sell him off into slavery. Fast forward the story a whole lot. And and Joseph ends up being in Egypt, uh, first in prison and then making his way actually through the ranks in Egypt uh, to eventually be Pharaoh's like right-hand man who's basically helping him run Egypt. Uh, and the, the brothers, who long ago sold him into slavery, um, are experiencing a famine and have to come to Egypt in order to ask for help. And lo and behold, when the brothers come into Egypt, into the throne room, whom do they see but Joseph? And what do they have to do? Bow down before him. <laughs> they have to come to him and basically say, in, in submission, you were right. <laughs> you, you were right. I, I, I relent. We, we need your help. We, we, we need you to, to step in. You were right, Joseph. Now, now, what does this have to do with what is going on for these Christians in Philadelphia? Well, I believe that Jesus puts this reference there in order to help these Christians understand that not only is the door he opened to them unable to be shut so that they can experience a welcome, but also the door remains open after they've walked in, open for more to come through, including those that are persecuting them. Joseph's brothers had to come bow down before him to admit that he was right. And Jesus, I think, brings up this to encourage these Christians in their continued witness, to to show them that the door remains open even for those who are adamantly opposed to Jesus. The door remains open and some of them will come through and bow down before these Christians admitting that they were right about their witness to Jesus. So Jesus is trying to not just encourage them in their endurance to show them that they have an acceptance and a welcome in him, but also he's trying to show them there's still opportunity in your witness for those who are persecuting you. He's trying to encourage them to stay faithful in their witness. You know, one of our, one of our values of a chur- as a church is, is sent on mission. 
Uh, and under every value, we have like these little mantras that kind of help us remember what that value really means. Uh, and for that, it, it, uh, for Sent on Mission, it's, it's not a matter of if you were called, but to whom and where. So if you're, if you're a Christian, it's not a question of if you are called to witness to Jesus. It's just a question of to whom and to where. Uh, those are the things you have to answer. Those are the things you have to figure out. But, but one of the major barriers to answering that call to be sent on mission is the misunderstanding of how people come to Jesus, I think. We have this idea that only those close to the kingdom can actually make the jump over into faith. And so we, we look out at our mission field, we look out at our city, or we get to know our neighbors and our coworkers, and we see very few people that we would identify as open to the gospel, and so therefore we get discouraged and never actually witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's, friends, a, a misunderstanding. People don't come to Jesus because they are open to him. They come to Jesus because he calls them. <laughs> and when that real call goes out, you cannot resist it. You cannot refuse that call of Jesus. I know for myself, there's no real reason that I can point to as to why I should have become a Christian at 18. Like, yeah, sure, I mean, you know, you might look at my story and be like, well, you grew up in church. Of course it happened for you. Sure, but I use church as a crutch, as, as an as a identity marker. It was, a, it, was, it was something that helped me feel self-righteous. It's, it's actually something that I used, weirdly enough, to refuse Jesus and his grace for 18 years. There's no reason why that should have led me to Jesus. And more than that, like any 18-year-old, I was focused on a lot of other things. I was mainly focused on sexual pleasure like most 18-year-olds are. There's no reason why I should have trusted in Jesus. But God got a hold of me. He broke through. He had a door that I could not shut. And because of that, I'm a Christian today. <laughs> and the same is true for whoever you're thinking about, whoever in your life that you might answer that question of who you are called to and where you are called to. If you answer that question and then you think, <laughs> those people would not be an option for Jesus. <laughs> They're too far gone. Jesus is trying to say here, no, there's, there's, that door remains open for anyone, and so we don't opt ourselves out of witness <laughs> because we think that it's gonna be too hard. So even in this message that hits on persecution, Jesus commends them to continue their witness because the door remains open even for those who are adamantly against the faith. Now, unfortunately, I went way too long on these few verses, so I don't have time to cover the rest, talk about tribulation and all that, but don't worry, we will get there as we go through Revelation. But let me, just, let me just end with this. Our continued witness and our acceptance of exclusion really hangs, friends, on our sense of acceptance by God and Jesus Christ. If you try to endure in the Christian life without really coming to learn and accept at the depths of your soul your acceptance in Jesus, you will get exhausted. Because friends, there's a difference between manufacturing the Christian life and manifesting the life of Christ. There's a difference between those two things. And the only way that we don't manufacture but actually manifest the life of Christ is when we accept who we are in Jesus Christ. Because it's easy to leave a savior that you don't think wants you any longer. It's easy to punt on that faith. 
So for us, friends, we we need to remember that this open door that Jesus has forced open by his blood and sealed open, well, over that door hangs one great truth. Jesus will never cast out. Jesus will never cast out. He says that in John 6, 37, where he says, behold, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to Jesus, no matter where you're at today, he will never cast out. And, you know, to get more nerdy Greek on you, the Greek there, um, never cast out, is actually an emphatic, which really should read, I will never, ever, never, never cast out. (laughs) But it doesn't read well, so they don't do that in the translation. But that's the truth. He will never cast out. You can run to him. Whatever objection you think you have as to why you shouldn't be accepted by God, friends, lay it down. Lay it down and accept that you are accepted in Christ. That you are washed. You are clean. You are welcome. God is not standing at that door, tapping his foot, wishing like, oh, well, here comes this fool again. No, it's the welcome we already talked about, ready to snatch you in. So wherever you're at, would you, in some ways, welcome into your heart the welcome that you've received in Christ? Let go of these objections. Let go of the things that would keep you from the one who wants you near. Let me close with this. This is a, this is a quote from the old author, John Bunyan. I don't have the quote, I found it this morning, so tune in. He says this, speaking of that John 6, 37 text. For this word will never cast out. That cuts the throat of all objections. And it was dropped by the Lord Jesus for that very end. And to help the faith that is mixed with unbelief. And it is, as it were, the sum of all promises. Neither can any objection be made upon the unworthiness that you find in yourself that this promise will not eventually quiet. You might say, but I am a great sinner. Jesus says, I will never cast out. But I am an old sinner, you might say. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner, you might say. I will never cast out. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, you might say. I will never cast out. But I've served Satan all my days, you might say. I will never cast out. But I've sinned against mercy. I will never cast out. But I have no good thing to bring with me, you might say. I will never cast out, says Christ. This promise was provided to answer all objections and does indeed answer them so. Voice your objection and hear what Jesus says back. I will never cast out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the mercy of Jesus Christ. Lord, I don't know why, but I just, I uniquely feel his kindness this week that that you would address this church in Philadelphia with such kindness and such comfort. 
thank you that that's the way that you treat tired, confused, at their wits end type of people. You don't tell us to find our own strength, but you, you tell us to run to you and to be encouraged and strengthened, nourished and re-energized by the welcome that is ours and your son, Jesus. Thank you for that, Father. And Lord, I, I pray that for anyone here today who, who has an objection that comes up in their heart as to why they should not be accepted by Christ, God, I just pray that by the voice of your Holy Spirit that you would overcome that objection and show that the never casting out heart of Jesus remains true, remains reliable. And from that reliability, give us strength, God, to remain faithful to you and to endure whichever exclusion we might feel either now or see on the horizon. God, give us strength. Let your mercy help us. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.